Some of you only need to look across the dinner table to find your closest connection to agriculture. Others of us need to look a little further back to find our farming family. My name is Portia Stewart. All four of my great-grandparents were farmers. But by my grandfather's generation, only my grandfather was still in agriculture. Now, like many Americans, I have no more farmers in my family. This made me wonder, have consumers lost their connection to the land? And have farmers lost their connections with consumers? Let's see if we can make some new connections. Welcome to Overheard, the Farm Journal Livestock podcast that connects the hearts and minds of producers and consumers to preserve our sustainable resources and provide high-quality food. start the show with Have You Heard, the latest news in livestock agriculture. Undercover filming on dairies is occurring with greater frequency. We're joined now by Mike Opperman, Editorial Director for Dairy Content at Farm Journal. Mike, tell us a little bit about what's happened at Fair Oaks Farms. Sure, Portia. Um, Fair Oaks Farms is you know, a prominent dairy in northern Indiana. They operate uh, several dairies uh, right in the northwest corner of Indiana. And one of those, um, I'm sure everybody knows, is uh, Fair Oaks Discovery Center uh, that is um, opens their doors to literally tens of thousands of consumers every year to come and uh, get kind of an immersive tour of uh, dairy farming. Um, so they're a prominent dairy, um, not only just in northern Indiana, but across the U.S. and across the world. So a couple of months ago, they were informed that um, they had had some employees on the dairy who had shot some undercover video. Right. Um, and so they, uh, Mike and Sue McCluskey, who are owners of Fair Oaks, put out a kind of a preemptive uh, video on Facebook, uh, kind of talking about the situation. Well, um, turns out earlier this week uh, there was actual video footage was released by the activist group. And uh, it, it showed some um, abuse uh, on the facility, one of their calf-raising facilities, by uh, four of their own employees and then an, another contract uh, truck driver. So, um, again, Fair Oaks uh, put out another statement. Uh, Mike McCluskey himself posted a, a response on Facebook that um, certainly didn't condone the actions, uh, certainly took full responsibility for it. Um, notified that, um, in fact, prior to the video being released, three of the employees had already been terminated um, because of um, other abuse incidents that that had been reported and that they had seen. And then the fourth employee uh, was terminated uh, once the video was um, released. And then the the contract contract truck grower was asked, uh, was they talked to the company that employed the contract truck grower, and that, and, and that person is not allowed back on any of their dairies. So um, they've gone through an, another third-party auditing uh, system where they've reevaluated uh, their protocols, animal handling systems, um, in an effort to make sure that this sort of thing doesn't happen again. But uh, certainly wasn't. Um, there were things in the video that nobody likes to see, um, and certainly 
definitely wasn't a positive thing for um, to be released. What were, what are some of the things that you would recommend that um, dairies can do to really make sure that they are being aware of what what's happening on their farms? Well, first thing that you need to do is make sure that all of your protocol uh, T's are crossed and I's are dotted, and that really is beneficial or really happens through the the National Farm Program. Um, I know a lot of the or most of the co-ops in the U.S. Uh, require that their patrons become farm certified, and um, and that and that certification is very important. And that really, but that really goes only as far as um, you know what the farmer implements on his own dairy. So you need to make sure that all of your employees understand the importance of uh, animal well, proper animal animal welfare uh, protocols, animal handling protocols, um, so that so that. You have an assurance that uh, proper procedures and are, are being um, are being implemented on your dairy. Um, second thing is when you you need to be really careful uh, on your hiring practices. Um, I interviewed a dairy in Florida who had gone through kind of a similar situation and uh, had a, had had an undercover uh, employee shoot some video uh, on his dairy and. You know, he said when he hired the person that there were just a few things that made him think um, that, that that something was maybe a little off. Uh, the person, you know, wanted to have documentation of everything that he signed. You know, they had uh, various um, HR documents that were signed, and he wanted copies of those. Well, no one had ever really asked for that uh, in the past. Once he was hired, he was asked. He asked if he could be transferred to the calf raising uh, area, and. So he, he thought that that was kind of uh, unusual because, um, you know, nobody really had ever been asked to be transferred before. Well, he wanted to be in a situation where he could document more abuse. Right. Um, and then another one of the another one of the dairies in the area, um, you know, the the person was uh, working in a milking parlor, making minimum wage, but you know, he drove a Mercedes back and forth to work. So there was something a little bit off about. Um, about that person, certainly he was getting some sort of remuneration in other areas. So right. basically, um, what it comes down to is, if if you feel like something is wrong, certainly explore it. And if it feels like something just isn't right, you need to uh, check that out. So hiring practices, making sure the protocols are followed, are two of the biggest areas. Mike, these videos are pretty tough to watch. What? Would you recommend producers take from these videos? What should they learn from it? And as a counterpoint, what do consumers need to know when they watch these videos? Well, I think there's a few things. Uh, from a producer perspective, um, you know, unfortunately, if somebody wants to capture undercover video of your dairy um, and, and, it is, and is really dedicated and passionate about doing that, they're probably going to, um, they're probably going to find a way. Um, if you look at some of these videos, you know, they might be eight to ten minutes long. Um, there's a lot of uh, introduction and, and graphical elements to it. But, you know, there may be five minutes of footage. Well, that person may have worked for six or eight months on the dairy just to capture that, you know, five minutes of footage. So, um, so you know, things, things happen and you always have to be vigilant about making sure that um, protocols are followed. Uh, then from a consumer perspective, you know, I go back to um, what 
uh, Jamie Jonker at National Milk Producers Federation said, you know, when you look at a video, really there's three different things that you see. First are, you know, practices that are common to a dairy farm that are just part of everyday management. For example, in the Fair Oaks dairy, um, there was some initial footage of cows uh, bellering because their calves had been taken away right after they had calved. Well, sure, to a to a consumer that seems pretty tragic, but yeah, that's a common practice, and there are reasons why that happens on a dairy farm. Right. And then, secondly, there are practices that are common on a dairy farm that maybe the footage that's captured just shows that those practices are not done properly. Um, and that, again, comes down to protocols and proper animal handling. And then the third area, and we saw a lot of this in the Fair Oaks video and in other videos, is there's things that you just don't like, to, that you just don't want to see. Um, and largely, or most of the time, those are employees that are just acting uh, rogue or are just not um, good people and shouldn't be working with animals on a dairy farm. So, unfortunately, um, those areas... Um, you know, cannot sometimes go unnoticed, um, and certainly they can be rectified by, you know, terminating the employee, but oftentimes the damage is already done. So consumers need to uh, kind of under, understand, and it's, it's important for the dairy industry and, and other livestock areas to continue to educate producers, or I'm sorry, consumers, um, about what is really, what, what is real and what isn't on some of those dairies. So, Right. Thank you, Mike. You're welcome. Next up, let's meet a millennial. Here, millennial consumers share their feelings about meat and dairy what they eat, where they shop, and how they make their purchasing decisions. Today I'm joined by Brooke. Hi Brooke. Hi. So Brooke, first question, are you a meat eater? Um, absolutely, and one, I love your puns. They're amazing. Um, I couldn't live my life without meat. <laughs> so what's your favorite? Uh, I religiously live by chicken. Chicken? And beef. I tried to sneak some pork in there every now and then, but it, uh, I don't get around to it. It's a little harder to cook. My secret favorite thing in the whole wide world, my guilty pleasure meal, when I like really need a pick me up, it's it's a steak. Oh yeah, I love a good a good steak, especially if you uh, sear it in a cast iron skillet and you put it in the oven afterwards. It's so good. That's a good tip. Yeah, yeah, that's a good tip. So, how do you make decisions about food? Um, are we talking meat in general or just food? Just oh, food. Just food. Um, honestly, it's whatever the local grocery store traditionally has. I'm none I don't know yeah <laughs> so when you're looking around is there anything that really is it is it certain setups in the grocery store that catch your eye or is it just that there's a certain product that you you love um, well I guess I guess I, I kind of misspoke because I do always go into the grocery store with a game plan mm -hmm. and so I look for what's on my list and I try not to buy outside of that that being said, every now and then I do end up with a pineapple in my cart. That wasn't supposed it to be happens. there. It happens yeah, all yeah. I didn't need apples, but I have 12 of them now. Um, but definitely um, on a good eye-catching display yeah. could. Are you a Honeycrisp fan? Yes, oh, and Gala. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Do you have any influences, like people you follow who share recipes or books or 
websites you go to that influence your food choices? I am. Te- I tend to be a hashtag follower rather than an influencer follower. So I live by Instagram and I follow like hashtag healthy, hashtag all those meal prep because the more I can make in the less amount of time is my goal. Right. Um, but no, not in the individual particularly. Gotcha. Um, we've heard that millennials spend more on food than on clothing. How important is food to you? I would definitely agree with that. I spend more on food. Um, I'm probably in that average 450 per month on groceries in bracket um, for two people, not just me. (laughs) Um, And I think that diet is the most important in a healthy lifestyle. Right. Uh, And it's interesting you should say that um, there... There are some people who feel very strongly that meat should not be part of a healthy diet. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, Not particularly, you know, to each his own. Um, I think that protein is very important, but how you get your protein in. I'm indifferent. So what is your favorite guilty pleasure treat? Oh, um, probably Mexican food. Yeah. Me too. (laughs) Me too. Yep. Yeah. Mexican food. Definitely. Um. And then a second would be french fries and coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Close second. Not together. (laughs) That's right. And, you know, lard. Oh, my gosh. I'm sure. I like any time tamales come into the picture, I know that they're full of lard. All bets are off. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Well, thank you, Brooke. Yeah, definitely. For today's main dish, we're serving up John Piotti of American Farmland Trust. First, let's learn a little bit about American Farmland Trust. We lose three acres of farmland in the United States every minute. You heard that right. Three acres every 60 seconds. This wake-up call comes courtesy of John Piotti, president of American Farmland Trust, who spoke about conservation and farmland at the 2019 Trust in Food Symposium in Chicago. Over the last 20 years, we've lost 31 million acres of farmland. That's equivalent to all of the farmland in Iowa. That's over 1.5 million acres a year, or three acres every minute, Piotti says. This loss of farmland is roughly twice what anyone thought it was, because previous estimates ignored low-density rural development. What's even more frightening, Piotti says, is the fact that we're losing our best land fastest. Now, Piotti knows that some will argue these losses aren't a big deal. Maybe we don't need as much land as we used to because we're more productive on the land we have, they say. Maybe vertical farms can supply our vegetables, and we can turn to labs to produce our meat. Or maybe we can just stop eating meat, stop wasting food, and stop making ethanol, and our current amount of farmland will sustain us. If these options don't sound like reasonable solutions to you, Piotti says we need to take action now. Here's what I know, Piotti says. I know 1.5 million acres a year represents a greater percentage than it might suggest, because much of that land is our best land, land that is most versatile, resilient, and productive. And it adds up. Losing the equivalent of all of the farmland in Iowa in 20 years is a big deal. And more compelling, he says, is this message. He's not sure America can afford to lose a single acre. In fact, he's not sure we have enough farmland today. Why? 
Because farmland is for far more than growing food, Piotti says. We all know that farmland provides many essential environmental services, such as providing a home for wildlife, storing and purifying water, and sequestering carbon. Yet we also know that farming, as currently practiced, causes some environmental degradation, notably water pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. What that means is that we are not yet managing farmland to produce sufficient environmental benefit. Doing so will undoubtedly require that we not grow food as intensely on every parcel of land. Hence the question, do we have enough farmland today? We need farmland not just to grow food, but to help restore our planet, explains Piotti. To Piotti, conservation practices are essential, but so is profitability. These two factors form an intimate connection that must be balanced to create a future for the farmers of tomorrow. An important point. Profit is not a dirty word. If farmers aren't economically stable, they can't be the stewards our land needs. Managing the land wisely, Piotti says, requires enough farmers and ranchers who know their land intimately and can afford to do what's right by the land. He encourages us to ask ourselves these questions. How much farmland would we need if we were going to grow our food in a manner that didn't involve any environmental degradation? How much more farmland would be needed, managed in which way, to go beyond carbon neutral to be a carbon sink? How much more land would be needed as demand for food increases and as climate change reduces the sustainability of other land to grow food? And finally, how do these equations change when we think about American agriculture as part of a global system? If the goal of protecting farmland is to make sure that land will always be there in the future, Piotti says, you haven't achieved your goal if your topsoil is washing down the Mississippi River. So, from the beginning, AFD has been about saving farmland both by the acre and by the inch. What we also recognize from the beginning is that it doesn't happen in isolation, Piotti says. That only happens if you have farmers and ranchers who have the tools they need to be good stewards of the land. So at AFT, we see an inseparable trinity. It's about the land, it's about the farming practices, and it's about the people who do the work, and it's all interconnected. Farmers and ranchers, Piotti says, are the eyes on the ground and the hands in the dirt. 20 years ago, AFT pioneered a study called Farming on the Edge that documented the loss of farmland in the United States for the very first time. They're pushing that groundbreaking work further with a comprehensive collection of data called Farms Under Threat that will take a deeper dive to completely map federal grazing lands and examine forest land owned by farmers, as well as assess the productivity and versatility of farmland. With national experts, we have developed a new system for assessing the productivity, versatility, and resilience of farmland using criteria that go well beyond soil types, Piotti says. We will be able to look at changes over time and over various hypothetical scenarios. And because all of this data is linked to national climate change models, we will be able to assess how changes in temperature and precipitation and sea level will affect farmland. The bottom line, Piotti says, is that we must retain enough farmland and manage it using the right practices. But we cannot hope to retain all the farmland we need, nor manage it wisely, without enough farmers who have adequate know-how and financial resources, Piotti says. 
Since you've been listening, we now have 21 fewer acres of land dedicated to agriculture. That's pretty scary. AFT is known for its iconic green bumper sticker, no farms, no food. And if the current trends continue, Piotti says, the bumper sticker might require this ominous update. No farms, no food, no future. I'm joined now by John. Let's start with the no farms, no food topic. Um, when did you decide that that message needed a bit of a refresh? Well, American Farmland Trust has been using the tagline, no farms, no food, for a long time now, I think well over 20 years, and it resonates with a lot of people. Uh, but we do think that part of thinking about the future of agriculture is recognizing that as essential, as fundamental as it is for us to have farmland to grow our food, uh, that we really need to get members of the public in particular aware of the fact that farms and ranches do so much more for us. You know, whether it's vibrant rural communities or outdoor recreation or wildlife habitat, or perhaps most importantly, plants and soil that naturally purify our water and air and agricultural processes that capture carbon and can help combat climate change. These are things that uh, we need the public to understand our benefits that our farms and ranches can provide. So the need for us is to elevate this beyond food. As critically important as food is, there's so much else that our farms do for us. Now, there's probably a number of ways of doing that, but we have this tagline that has worked well and is known, no farms, no food. So it doesn't make sense to cast that off. It's very powerful. But in some circles, we now refer to it as no farms, no food, no future. For us, it's making the point, the point that as essential as it is that we have our farms to grow our food, they are also needed for so many other things. Let me ask you this. I know that you're talking about connecting with that consumer. What is the farmer's role in that connection? How can they reach out? Well, I think it depends on the farmer. Um, Obviously, if you're a small farm who's selling through direct markets, whether that be at a farmer's market or through a CSA, or maybe you have direct relationships with a local grocery store or a local restaurant. Farmers in those situations have really a soapbox. They really have an opportunity to to talk about farming, to help people truly understand both the challenges and the opportunities of farming in the future. Now, if you're a farmer who is principally selling your products as commodities to a wholesaler or whatever, uh, you don't have that direct connection to the consumer and you need to rely perhaps on uh, the business that is the end product of, of, of what you're growing and, and having that business uh, communicate. And, and increasingly, as, as you and I know, more and more uh, food businesses are trying to connect the consumer back to uh, the amazing products that our, that our farmers grow. 
But as a farmer yourself, you're not really in the middle of that. Right. Maybe you're one of a few farmers who, who uh, uh, a food company calls out and, and you become part of a video or you become part of a, of a message. But having said that, there's still an, an important role for all farmers to play. And one of them, there's many, but one that I think of all the time is with uh, local governance issues. Right. So many of the things that affect farms come down to local, local planning, uh, sometimes local tax policy, things of that sort. And there's a place for all farmers to and I, I understand that farmers have limited time, but uh, to get engaged with the community and and to speak up at, at town meetings and to write an occasional letter to the editor and make people understand that farming is not something you can take for granted. Our farmland is not something that you can take for granted. This, this, these are these are businesses that serve the community, but they're also vulnerable and threatened by a whole host of of economic and societal factors. And if we want our food, if we want to have a secure future, we need to keep farms alive. So all farmers um, can play a role in some way, um, but obviously some of them have a, a bigger um, opportunity than others, depending on how they market. Well, let's take a look at it from the consumer standpoint. Do we, as consumers, uh, have an obligation to preserving farms and to understanding agriculture? Yes, is <laughs> the simple answer to that question. I think anyone who is utilizing a product uh, has to uh, take a certain amount of responsibility uh, for that product and, and is required to have a an understanding of what the consequences of, of using that, that product are. Um, and in the case of, of food, um, it is important for us to know where our food comes from. It is important to know uh, how that land is stewarded that is providing that food. And we can't take it for granted. We, we have to recognize that we, we can't hope for having uh, delicious food grown close to home and at the same time be willing to have uh, all the farmland on the outskirts of town paved over. You, you, can't, you can't have it, have it both ways. Right. And, and so the, the, there, there is a, um, a responsibility to understand and a need for an appreciation of how these things um, are interconnected. Uh, the no farms, no food message was trying to draw that link. Uh, and I, I dare say that 25 years ago, a lot fewer consumers even thought about this. To them, for many of them, food was, was something that you got at the grocery store. I think that has changed in the minds of many, many consumers and not just because of AFP and the no farms, no food message. Obviously, it's, it's been a, a, there's been a sea change, really, and part of it has been uh, farmers and food companies delivering that message. Part right. of it has been a number of popular books that have been written, trying to get people to understand a little bit more about, about farming. Um, so there really has been a change in, I'd say, the last 15, 20 years. Some parts of the country have just finally getting there, but it mm -hmm. began in other places 15 or 20 years ago. 
and that's great. Um, it is, however, in some ways a little bit of a double-edged sword because when consumers are armed with information, uh, they sometimes become quite demanding and certain demands are good to go into the local grocery store and say, boy, those, <laughs> those strawberries from the farm you had down the street are great. You need to get more local food in here. Right. That's a good kind of demand. Um, but there's always, there's always a problem with someone who has heard one side of a story or has read one book. Um, as you and I both know, right. agriculture is an incredibly complicated subject, and, and there are not simple answers, particularly on, on agricultural policy challenges that we face. So uh, it's great that people are taking ownership. I want to see more of that. Um, but I also think all of us, even those of us who are farmers, those of us who have worked with, in, with farmers as, as I have for 30 plus years, we need to be humble and recognize we don't have all the answers. You make a really good point about um, sometimes we have a disconnect, even though we're both really looking, um, and I say both when I'm talking about both farmer and consumer, uh, at the core, they probably have very similar wants and desires and goals for the land and how it's treated. But sometimes we do see that disconnect. How do we get past that? Well, it's, it's a great question. And you raise a, or make a great point. Every farmer I have ever met really wants to do what's right by the land. First off, farmers care about the land deeply. Uh, but secondly, they also care about being in, in business and in long term doing what's right for the land is what's going to allow their, their farms or ranchers to continue to be viable and hopefully to pass on to the next generation in, in, in some form. So farmers have a very strong uh, environmental ethic. Farmers are stewards of, of the land. And generally when members of the public are getting up in arms about something happening in agriculture, it's because uh, they feel that uh, uh, maybe farming is not being done the right way. Maybe it, it is creating too much pollution or creating too many uh, um, other kind of uh, externalities. Um, so uh, there, there is a disconnect there, even though both groups in many ways uh, want the same thing. Right. And I think what consumers need to remember is uh, in, not, in, not everywhere, and this is a broad generalization, and, and so it's, it's clearly not always true, but there are, there are some consumers who really put agriculture into two camps, the good actors and the bad actors, right. and, and sometimes the, the good players and the, uh, the, the farmers who they interact with at the farmer's market who are... Um, uh, operating at a fairly low scale and selling direct to them and, and sometimes the bad actors are, are uh, everyone who is on a big farm or anyone who's growing growing corn and soy or you know different people have their have their have their own uh, definitions but for many consumers farmers are put into these into these these camps and and that is the challenge for or maybe I should say that's what consumers need to uh, uh, move away from. Um, farmers want to do what's right by the land, um, the vast, vast, vast majority of them. And when they can't, 
when they uh, when when there are barriers that prevent them from doing that, they are usually huge economic barriers um, that if they transgressed them, they would be out of business, and, right. and nobody would be better off in, in that instance. Uh, the, the farm would go fallow, the farm would become a parking lot, what, what, whatever the outcome might be. So consumers, by and large, I think, don't really get the connection between good farming practices and the economics of farming. Uh, they assume that um, the farmers uh, could just uh, be all farming and in a way that was uh, 100% restorative and wonderful for the environment. And the truth is that farming primarily is a wonderful enhancer of our environment. And and the, the option to having a viable farmland of having uh, developed land um, is a very clear choice between something that's good for the earth and something that's not. But farmers cannot always follow the most forward-looking practices because they also have to make a living. Right. Um, and consumers make trade-offs all the time in their lives and, and don't think about it. But for some reason, when a farmer um, makes a trade-off, which may not be as, as environmentally progressive as the consumer would like, uh, the consumer often doesn't uh, doesn't respect that decision. You make a really good point about how um, there are steps we can take, and there are steps that uh, are maybe a little out of reach right now. That that maybe there are financial barriers. There are situations that we need uh, maybe additional resources. Uh, whether that's the government stepping in, whether that's um, uh, outside support from companies or or people who are, uh, can, can be leaders and bring that, those resources to our farmers. I wondered if we could talk a bit about uh, changes we can make today. What, are the, what, what would be one thing that we could do today that would make a difference as a farmer? Well, I'm gonna answer your, your question uh, in a complicated way, and I hope you don't mind. <laughs> so you made, a, you made a great point, Portia, which is, there are some things that you can do and there are some things that are significantly harder to do. And, and that's true up and down the list of agricultural possibilities. So when it comes, for instance, to agricultural practices, when it comes to maybe applying some uh, more environmentally sound farming practices on a piece of land, an area that American Farmland Trust has been pushing and advocating farmers to do now for 39 years. When it comes to those things, it is also in two categories. There are things that make sense to do um, because they're going to be both good for the earth and they're going to increase productivity and thus ultimately also um, help the farmer be successful. Right. So that's one category. And then that's where we've seen, for understandable reasons, most of the changes in farming practices that have occurred. A lot of the no-till that has been happening, a lot of the cover crops, a lot of the rotation, um, crop rotation work, a lot of what we've seen with rotational grazing amongst uh, the livestock industry. Um, it, it, it is those opportunities where you are simultaneously getting environmental benefits and you are getting uh, enhanced productivity maybe reduced inputs, and hopefully, um, ultimately, uh, increased 
profitability. That's one category. But there are a lot of things that one could potentially do that would lead to greater environmental benefit that society would gain from, but the farmer is not being compensated for those things. Right. So ultimately, we do need some kind of mechanisms, and I, I say it with, a, with the S on the end, uh, to help, because I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all or some kind of silver bullet out there. Um, and it's probably potentially uh, support through USDA and other government entities that occurs now. The, some of the conservation programs that are affordable now are because of uh, USDA uh, programming, cost sharing, and the like. Right. Uh, but maybe we need to go further with that. And some of it ultimately might come down to market mechanisms as well. So um, I just my my the the first layer of of my answer is this. Uh, reinforcing what you said, which is that there really are two two different categories. So going back to the first category where you can do something now, right. what does that say to farmers? Because even though many farmers have been adopting these things, um, a lot of others haven't. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, what, one of it is, one of the main reasons I think is that Farming is such a marginal business. Even if, even if it looks like a good thing to do, even if your neighbor has tried it and it's worked for, for him, um, it's still scary. When you are operating on such slight margins, it's really scary. Right. So one suggestion that I have for farmers, and I say this with incredible amount of, of, of humility, is, is think about taking some risk. And farmers will say, I'm always taking risk. And they are. Right. And you just have to look at, at, at severe weather events, the floods that have been happening in the Midwest. Farmers are, are, are such a vulnerable, um, so vulnerable in so many ways. And uh, so I, I hesitate to say it, but we do know that the adoption rate of some of these farming practices that have been shown to work is lower than it should be. So one answer is, is, is take some calculated risk, but be bold, be a little, be willing to uh, take a couple of steps in that, in that direction. The second answer that I have, which almost any farmer can begin to do now, is to think about the future and begin to do some planning. Right. Uh, we've spent a lot of time over many years with farmers who are thinking about the future of their farms. It could be the future of the land and whether or not it needs uh, permanent protection. It could be uh, the future of the operation and whether or not there's someone within the family to, to groom, to take it over, and if not, how you position this operation so it's going to be attractive and affordable to an incoming farmer. All those things come down to good planning, and it can never happen too early. Right. Uh, I've seen hundreds of cases of people just putting that off and putting that off and putting it off, and then something happens. Uh, someone has a heart attack. Uh, someone dies. Uh, the financial problems get too hard. And when you don't have a plan in place, you then often um, take steps that you regret later. Right. John, one last Long one. answer to your simple question. <laughs> I appreciate it. These are not easy, uh, these are not easy challenges. Uh, so it takes a little it takes a little thought and framing to get to the right path. Uh, one last question, John. I did want to ask you, um, what is 
What is uh, on deck for the next year for uh, American Farmland Trust? Well, we've been at this work now for 39 years, which means the next year includes our 40th anniversary. And in our minds, uh, we've done some great work during that period of time. We've helped protect six and a half million acres of farmland. We've we've helped uh, have uh, probably about a half million farmers, one shape or, or form, uh, take advantage of uh, our services, and and that has really made a difference on millions of acres of, of land for farming practices. We've increasingly done good work helping the next generation. So we're proud of all of that, but we really think that we're not doing it yet at the scale that's needed, uh, given the the pressures of the future. Farming um, farming is our future, and, and yet it faces some significant challenges with land loss, with better farming practices not being adopted at the rate that they need to be and with this demographic crisis that's hitting us um, with so many farmers being so old and the number of new and beginning farmers uh, not being nearly what it needs to be uh, to replenish the supply right. so the challenge for AFT, which coincides with our 40th anniversary is to scale up we know the tools that work we just need to uh, do them bigger and uh and and broader and a little bolder maybe it's a little bit of the same message i just delivered back for some farmers we're going to take some risks uh, right. as an organization this next year to try to do more well we look forward to seeing uh seeing what you guys continue to accomplish well thank you Portia. i appreciate that very much thank you for joining us today john Thanks for joining us today on Overheard, the Farm Journal Livestock Podcast. For more information about sustainability, visit agweb.com. To learn more about the dairy business, visit dairyherd.com. We'll see you next time on Overheard.